Before we uh, get stuck in, I think it's just worthwhile recognising that Ilza was, that was the first time she played the big piano, so well done. Thank you very much. It's good to have you uh, join, you know, and, and grow in that ministry as well. So thank you for your, for your service as well. Now, I want to say um, straight up this morning that we're going to be doing a five-point sermon this morning. And there are five things that I want to look at, and they all conveniently, or perhaps in a shoehorn kind of way, start with the letter D. Declaration, demon oppression, disease, dearth, and death. Uh, now, by the way, dearth is not a word that we use often. It means to have a lack of something. There is a dearth of food because of the famine, for example, for, or because of the drought. Or there's a dearth of evidence, meaning we can't convict the criminal. Or teenagers have a dearth of good sense, and so on. Uh, and so when I talk about dearth today, that's what I'm talking about, a lack of something. Now, the reason I choose to use the word dearth is because it starts with D, and lack doesn't start with D, so dearth it will be. So declaration, demon possession, disease, dearth, and death. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. So let's dive in. Now today is a sermon about miracles. Uh, as we've been traveling through um, the Garden to Garden City series, we've been zooming out and looking at the big picture of what is going on. And so this morning I want to focus on uh, kind of the start of Jesus' ministry um, and think about his miracles and what is going on there. Now the one thing that has often bothered me as I've read the Gospels in the past, the, the, the one thing that's confused me is this question. Why didn't Jesus heal everyone who was brought to him? Why didn't he spend more time healing people, casting out demons, feeding thousands and so on? This was a, a, a small section of his ministry, but that was not most of his ministry actually. Um, so why not? Why, as he looks over Jerusalem and cries and weeps over the city and how lost it was, that's how he felt about it, about the suffering of people. So why didn't he do more miracles to sort these things out? And so today I'm going to hopefully answer that question for you as well. And we're going to start by looking at Jesus' declaration of his mission statement of the work that he's coming to do. And so we're going to jump around quite a bit in the Bible. Not every one of our things uh, are in here, so you, you might have to follow along on the screen. And so um, the declaration is Jesus' uh, mission statement, and we read that in Luke chapter 4 from verse 16. Now hopefully this works. No, this doesn't work. So... Sandra, if you've got Luke chapter 4 there, hmm. uh, if you have your Bibles with you, there we go, uh, from Luke chapter 4 verse 16. Now he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. As usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him and unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release for the captives, and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on Him. 
And he began to say, uh, and he began by saying to them, Today, as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. Now, in the book of Luke, this is the first time that Jesus speaks publicly. This is his first public address, his first teaching. And the first words that Luke records of Jesus speaking in public is this mission statement that says, I've come to preach good news, to proclaim release of the captives, to recovery of sight for the blind, and to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And then he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled. And that is a massive thing for him to say. And so we have to look at what's actually going on here. Now, here Jesus is quoting uh, Isaiah. He's specifically quoting chapters 58 and 61. And in verse 17 of our text, he says he unrolls it and then he goes and looks for it, for this place where it's written, um, and then he, he proclaims. Jesus is doing something very specific here. He, in his first publicly recorded words, he is claiming to be the Messiah. He is claiming to be the one who's come to set the captives free and break the chains of the oppressed, to, to heal blindness, both spiritual and physical blindness. And as we've been traveling from the road of, of the garden uh, of city, sorry, from the Garden of Eden to the Garden City, we've been doing that for under a year now, and there's this conflict that has been brewing as we've traveled. Now, and at this point, the story really takes a turn. So what's happening in, in Genesis chapter 3 in the Garden of Eden is that sin is introduced into the big picture story. That's the, the, this eternal conflict. It launches this eternal conflict be, between kind of humanity and God. Their relationship is broken. Now as sin enters the world, four consequences pop up along with the sin problem. There are these four sin consequences that result because sin enters the world. And that's demonic oppression, disease, dearth, and death. And so as long as sin is around, you're going to get a situation where people are being oppressed by demons. As long as sin is around, you're going to get disease. As long as sin is around, there's going to be a lack of things, a dearth of things. And as long as sin is around, there is going to be death. And so what Jesus is doing is he's making this massive declaration by saying, you know that sin issue, that thing, that basic human problem that you have, you know that thing that causes disease and demonic oppression and so on, that issue that came into the world when our first parents, Adam and Eve, disobeyed God, that thing that broke our relationship with God since forever ago, that issue that has never been solved, whether through trials of kings or judges or prophets or the nation of Israel, that issue, that problem, I am the solution. Jesus is declaring that he is going to bring an end to the sin problem. When he says he's going to release captives and heal disease and set people free, he's saying he's come to reverse the consequences of sin. He is rebuilding the world. And and it's for this reason that Jesus' miracles are so specific. He doesn't just heal because he wants to heal. He doesn't just drive out demons because he wants to drive out demons. He, he does these things to show and to point to the bigger solution to the bigger problem, sin itself. And so Jesus' declaration here is that I am the solution. And so he goes about proving himself by performing some very specific miracles to prove his point. 
And the very first one he does, straight after this mission statement, in Luke chapter 4, is he goes about freeing a captive from demon possession. Now there you go. So this time it seems to be uh, playing along. Or not. <laughs> um, so I'm looking for verse 31 to 37. I'll read it to you. So, when, uh, so after Jesus makes this declaration, he goes down and he says this. So then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching because his message had authority. Now in the synagogue there was a man with an unclean demonic spirit who cried out in a loud voice, Leave us alone. What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him and said, Be silent and come out of him. And throwing him down before them, the demon cat out of him without hurting him at all. And amazement came over, all of, uh, came over them all, and they were saying to one another, What is this message? For he commands the unclean spirits with authority and power, and they come out. And so the news about him began to go out to every place in the vicinity. And so just after Jesus declares that he's come to, to undo, um, undo the effects of sin, his ministry now starts. He starts how? By undoing the effects of sin. The very first thing he does is actually to set a captive free, in this case from a demon. Now why was this man in the synagogue? At if he was oppressed by a demon? Why would he come to the temple of God if he knew that being in God's presence is kind of counter to, uh, to having a demon? I think that's because he knew that he had a problem. He was looking for freedom from his demonic oppression. Now we know from several of the writings of the day that there were actually in those days various exorcists who went about um, doing their work in those days. And, and they were sort of relatively common. Now it may well be that at this particular synagogue, this man was coming to, to look for uh, relief from his oppression uh, from one of these sort of traveling uh, exorcists. But we also know that these people would cast out demons through various elaborate rituals. They would kind of summon greater powers than themselves and cast out these evil spirits. And in doing so, they, they would use the greater power to overcome the demon, basically. So it's not the person, it's not the exorcist themselves who had power over these, uh, over these demons. And so when Jesus is doing this here, the reason people were astonished is because Jesus is not like these other demon outcasters. He has power and authority in and of himself. And this provokes the demon in the man, actually. When Jesus comes, the, the demon is the one who speaks to Jesus. And so Jesus casts out this demon, not by relying on bigger powers, but by his own authority, through his own power. And there's no elaborate ritual that has to go through. No other greater powers are being summoned. But with a simple command, Jesus says, Be silent and go. And the demon goes. And Luke, the author, makes a point of showing us that this man was, was left unharmed. This demon completely capitulated under Christ's authority. 
And look at the words that the demon uses. He says, what do you have to do with us? Have you come to destroy us? We know, or I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. This demon knows that he and Jesus have nothing in common. In fact, he's saying something like, we don't belong together. He knows that when Jesus comes into the world, he's coming to perform uh, and to complete a mission that is much bigger than casting out this particular demon or healing this particular man. His, his whole mission was to destroy evil itself, to completely remove it, to kill the cause of death. And this is important for us because here Luke is showing that Jesus has the authority to cast out this one man's demon. He has the authority over, uh, over the spirit world. He has the authority to, uh, to cast out demons. And if he didn't, our salvation would be under threat. If Jesus did not have the power over demons or over sin, in fact, he could not overcome Satan. He could not overcome the devil. He could not overcome death. And we would still be enslaved, friends. But this passage here teaches us that this one man, in having his demon cast out, uh, it shows us how much authority Jesus have, uh, has over the spirit world. It shows what Jesus' whole ministry on earth here was going to be about. This deliverance from evil and so when jesus proclaims that he's come to set the captives free this is part of what he meant freedom in christ means freedom from spiritual forces too and of course we see this best on the cross himself where jesus is killed he's slain by evil and he dies and as that great battle hymn of Christians says, there in, his, in the ground his body lay, the light of the world by darkness slain. But bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. For I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. It is important for us to understand that Jesus has authority over the demon world because we who are in Christ therefore do not need to fear demons. We don't have to fear demonic oppression because in Christ we are free. Jesus has authority over them. And so that's why he does these miracles that, that free people that cast out the demons. The second thing he does is he heals disease. Now, hopefully, in verse 38, yeah. oh, there we go, isn't that wonderful? So then, straight after this, he casts out the demon, this is the very th next thing that happens. After he left the synagogue, he enters Simon's house. Now, Simon's mother, this is Simon Peter, the apostle. Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high ever, uh, fever, and they asked him about her. So he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left. And she got up immediately and began to serve them. Then as the sun was setting, all those who had anyone sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid hands on each one and he healed them. And also the demons were coming out of many, shouting and, uh, and saying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them 
now would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Messiah. Now there's a lot that we can unpack in this, but I want to just focus on the actual healing there. And so Jesus leaves the synagogue, goes to Simon's house, um, and uh, Simon's mother-in-law has a high fever, and so Jesus comes and he heals her. But now, notice how he heals her. What does he do? He comes and he stands over her. He rebukes the fever and then it leaves. Now notice the wording that Luke uses here. Jesus comes to stand over this woman. This is meant to evoke this idea in the reader's mind of, of a giant towering over someone. We, we, actually, we actually are quite familiar with this kind of device. When we uh, watch TV or movies or something, when you have a shot of an actor from the bottom up, that when they look like this kind of towering giant, these things evoke in us the sense that this giant has authority over the situation. And so that's the picture we are supposed to get. We're meant to see Jesus' bigness over this illness. But now what does Jesus do to the fever? He doesn't, Luke doesn't describe this simply as a disease or an illness. This is something Jesus rebukes. He does exactly what he does to the demon, to this fever. He rebukes the fever and it leaves her. And she is left unharmed sorry, unharmed, and immediately begins serving Jesus. She's in the same position as this demon-possessed man before. Jesus rebukes the demon and it leaves him completely unharmed, and now he rebukes the, the fever and it leaves her completely unharmed. And the point Luke is trying to make is that the same authority that Jesus has over demonic oppression, which is a result of sin, is the same authority Jesus has over sickness, which is a result of of sin entering the world. Jesus uses the same power to cast out this fever. He has authority over these things too. Now remember last week we looked at how Jesus was tempted in the desert and Satan offers Jesus authority over the world. But he refuses to obey Satan. He rejects Satan's offer of authority over earth. Here, we're kind of in the reverse situation. Satan may have some authority, but Jesus' authority is far greater. Satan might have power over his subordinate demons or disease or whatever, but Jesus has the authority to undo the curse of sin. So he's casting out demons, he's, he's healing the sick because he's come to use his authority to fix the basic problem of sin itself. A new age is dawning in the story from garden to garden city. And as this one woman is healed, the, the dam wall bursts open. Jesus heals one man from a demon, he heals one woman from a sickness, and directly afterwards, as the sun sets, all these people flock to the house, they bring their sick, they bring their uh, demon-oppressed people to him, and it's almost as if as soon as Jesus shows his authority, the whole world cannot help but rush to him because he's the only one who can help them. The kingdom of God is now breaking into the world and the world, people can't help but respond to him. 
suddenly there was someone you could go to if you were sick who could actually help you. Suddenly there was someone who had authority even over demons and they would listen to him and obey him because they had to. There was freedom from the blindness that came from sickness and the blindness that came from spiritual oppression. And so the people flocked to Jesus, all of them, and they were healed and their demons were cast out. And the people were desperate for the solution only Christ could bring. Friends, are we desperate for the solution only Christ can bring? Something to think about. The second thing Jesus undoes is disease. Then he also undoes dearth. Uh, and so for those of us playing at home, dearth means lack of having something, not having enough. Now as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, what happens? They used to have all this fruit in the garden. They could eat from any tree except for the one. And they had all the things. But as the curse of sin comes into the world, what does God say to Adam? You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow. This lack of abundance is, is something that plagues the world because of sin. There are famines in the world, there are food shortages, there are lack of things in the world because of sin. And it's not just food that's lacking, it's life in general, right? The life we live today is kind of a weak imitation of the kind of life that Adam and Eve had with God before sin. They had this deep spiritual life where they could walk and talk with God, they were connected to Him. He was the source of life who gave them sense and meaning and purpose each day. And in the world of dearth, uh, that kind of spiritual connection is broken. And so when Jesus comes in, he says in John chapter 10, verse 10, he says, A thief comes only to kill and destroy and steal, but I have come so that you may have life in abundance. And so he proves, uh, one of the other great miracles that we're all familiar with is, is where he multiplies the food. He's got these loaves and fishes and he multiplies them in such an amount that he feeds 5,000 men and, and plus their wives and children uh, with these few fishes and loaves. Well, the very first miracle that Jesus does is he is at a wedding where, where he makes all this wine. Now, what we need to understand is it wasn't just one or two bottles of wine. He made about a thousand bottles of wine. It was hundreds and hundreds of liters of this stuff. With Christ, there is life in abundance. And when Jesus does these miracles, he says, with me, you will lack nothing. He is the shepherd of Psalm 23. With him, we have no want. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And this abundance of life ultimately finds its fulfillment in the reversal of death. And that's the last thing I want to... Think at this more about this morning, death. So in Matthew chapter nine, we read this. Uh, as he was telling them these things, suddenly one of the leaders came and knelt down before him, saying, "My daughter has just died, 
but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And so Jesus and his disciples got up and followed him. Then a woman who had suffered from bleeding for 12 years approached from behind and touched the end of his robe. For she said to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I will be made well. And Jesus turned and saw her. Have courage, daughter, he said. Your faith has saved you. And the woman was made well from that very moment. So when Jesus came to the leader's house, he saw the flute players and the crowd lamenting loudly. Leave, he said, because the girl is not dead but asleep. And they laughed at him. And after the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand and she got up. The news of this spread throughout that whole area. So this is just one example of, of Jesus raising someone from the dead, undoing the curse of death. Uh, but there's also the story of the, of the son of the widow at Nain, who he brings back to life. Lazarus, of course, is the great you know, one we all know. He brings him back from the dead. And each of these is another reminder of the image and power that Jesus ha- has, even over death. That very thing that God warned Adam and Eve of, if they should eat the fruit, they would die, that is the thing that Jesus is coming to undo. But now the problem is that all three people that are raised by Jesus, this girl, Lazarus, the son of the widow at Nain, they all die again. They were raised, they were healed, and then maybe, I don't know, 20 years later, they all died again. But these are all portraits of what Jesus came to do. Jesus started by declaring, I'm coming to undo the curse. He gave this mission statement saying he was coming to set the captives free. His resurrection would point ultimately, sorry, this resurrection would point ultimately to his own resurrection from the dead. The story that we have been following is coming to its climax at the cross. And Jesus, through his miracles, are giving these hints that this is the way of God's kingdom. On the cross, Jesus would take on death so that we would not have to die again. He would take the disintegration, in a sense, that we deserve. He would ultimately suffer in our place and take God's wrath against sin onto himself and be killed in our place. It's on the cross where Jesus would come to this final climactic act, take the death that God had predicted for Adam and Eve onto himself. And there he would perform the miracle of miracles. He would take death on and lose so that he could win. You see, Jesus' miracles show us that he has power over demon possession, he has power over disease, he has power over dearth and death. But all of these are just hints of the ultimate power that Jesus would come to fulfill his mission when he dies on the cross. All of these are just hints uh, that help us understand that actually he died very willingly on the cross. He died in our place so that we would not have to suffer demon oppression and disease, at least eternally. That we would no longer have to suffer a lack of things but have life abundantly in him. And that we would not have to suffer eternal death apart from God. Because he has all authority over the world. 
He has authority over demonic oppression. He has authority over disease. He has authority over dearth and authority over death. And with all of that authority, he still chose to go to the cross and to die for you and me. But don't you see, friends, that if he has all that authority, he has authority over your life too. If he could free a man oppressed by a demon even before he went to the cross, how much more now can he free you from your oppression? If he could raise someone from their very deathbed, if he had that sort of authority even before he went to the cross and was resurrected, how much more so can you experience healing at his hand now that he has been resurrected? If he could feed 5,000 people before he died, could make gallons and gallons of wine before his resurrection, imagine how much more full your life could be with him now. If only you would bow and accept him as your Lord of your life. And so Jesus' miracles ask us a very specific question. And that is, how will you respond to his authority? Will you come and accept him as the Lord of your life as he is? Or will you reject him, even the one who has authority over death itself, and die in your own place? As for me, this is my declaration. To this I hold, that my sin has been defeated. Jesus, now and ever is my plea. Oh, the chains are released and I can sing, I am free. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. With every breath I long to follow Jesus, for he has said that he will bring me home. And day by day I know he will renew me until I stand with joy before the throne. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus. All the glory evermore to him, for when the race is complete, still my lips shall repeat, yet not I, but through Christ in me. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus. And all the glory evermore to him, for when my race is complete, still my lips shall repeat, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Will you follow me as I follow Christ? Will you do as Paul says, imitate him as he imitates Christ? Will you today declare that your sin has been defeated, that your chains are released and you can sing, I am free? Not because of what you have done, but because what of, of what Jesus has done. Amen. Let me pray. Lord, we catch these glimpses of your power and authority as you do these miracles on earth. And yet as we reflect on those, we recognize that you have done a far greater miracle on the cross as you died and stood in the place of our sin took on our punishment, 
and reconciled us with God when we trust in you. And you've done a greater miracle again as you change our hearts to come and believe in you. O Lord, were it not for your work in our hearts, we would still be rejecting you today. And so we pray that for those of us who still reject you, Lord, that you would soften our hearts and break through, break through these chains that hold us down so that we can sing that we are free, yet not we, but through Christ in us. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.